Uh, second to last sermon in Exodus. Partly excited, partly sad. We're going to say goodbye to Exodus, but um, not before we cover uh, 12 chapters today. So, verse by verse. <laughs> Kidding. All right. Um, we'll be in Exodus cha- uh, chapter 25 through 31, uh, primarily. And uh, so if you have a Bible, take a moment to uh, open there. If you don't, we'll, we'll have the text on the screen. Um, but I will tell you, we have more pictures than text today. I know. Weird, right? Let's pray before we begin. All right. Lord, um, I pray that as we open your word, as we look at this um, part of, of the word that maybe we don't understand at first of what's going on and what's being revealed about your, your intentions for us, about your care for us, I pray that you would make that clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there's an old movie, which is now uh, cult classic status. And you younger folk need to catch up on Generation X's stuff because our stuff was better. It's called Office Space. Anyone know Office Space? Yeah, good one. Classic. It's a classic. It's not old. It's a classic. And, um, And the reason it's a classic is because Office Space grapples in a way, in a really hilarious and poignant way, with a very common human struggle. The struggle with work. And it follows a young man named Peter. Um, and, and we first meet Peter as he's commuting to work. And he is in stopped traffic. And of course, the lane next to him is moving freely. And you see him just fighting within himself. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. And then, of course, he can't resist. And he goes over to the la- at that lane. As soon as he does, he has to slam on his brakes. And the lane he was just in starts moving. And he does that the whole way on his way to a very bland, nondescript office park. And a very bland, nondescript office building with the best bland, nondescript tech company name in a tech. It's unbeatable. And you just see him as he gets out of his car. He is just dragging himself into work. And, you know, he puts his hand on the knob of the door where where his office is. And you see him just the the burden, the weight. And he breathes out this despairing sigh. And as he opens the door, it goes all slow-mo, right? And you just see the grimmest picture of, like, this room of just the sea of gray cubicles and like, it just seems like no one's ever had a good time in this room, right? And they have, you know, certain things the, uh, to, to, to drive home just the mind-numbing monotony of it. Like there's this lady answering phones. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking, just a moment. Click. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking, just a moment. And she's just doing that like all day long, right? It's just this mind-numbing, pointless torture machine for Peter and you see him get to his cubicle and slump down and and no sooner does he get to his cubicle and slump in his chair than his incredibly annoying boss comes up you know with his coffee's like hey Peter how's it going yeah um just your last TPS report didn't have the cover letter on it and we're we're putting cover letters on our TPS reports. We sent out a memo. Did you get the memo? And Peter's like, you know what? I did get the memo. I just forgot. So this really isn't a problem. I'm going to do it 
Next time, I just, I just plain old forgot. He's like, yeah, because we are putting those cover letters on the TPS reports. I'll resend you the memo, right? And, and then he's like, also, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. And since we're a little short-staffed, Sunday as well. He's like, <laughs> right? And as, as soon as that guy goes, another manager comes up. He's like, hey, Peter, how you doing, man? Hey, did you get the memo about the TPS? And he's hearing all day about the TPS reports. He's just about to lose his mind. And he grabs a couple of his friends and he go, goes with them to cough. And he sits down and he asks the million-dollar question of the movie. He says, what if I'm still doing this when I'm 50? Right? And, and the... the the import of that is like, what if he's just wasting his life? What if just sitting in that cubicle is just sucking away like his God-given life and it's going to be for no reason, it's for nothing? We have to ask the question. Like, sometimes we don't reflect. You know what the number one thing you're going to do with your time while you're alive Sleep. That's number one. You know what number two is going to be? Work. Your, most of your waking hours are spent working. Or if not working, then going to school. Some of you guys for decades to get to work, right? And a lot of the time, like, like I, I get it. Even those of us who love our jobs are still faced with kind of a feeling of futility. Like, what, what am I doing? What am I doing with with all this time? Is this like, hey, I'm writing ads or I'm doing whatever, right? Like, what does this mean? What does this matter? Is is this just a way to put food on the table, which is a good thing? Or is it a way like I'm funding my recreation or or, or what have you? And then there's also a burden that can come with work. Even if you like your job, uh, let's be honest, some of you guys hate your jobs. Some of you guys, every waking moment at your job, you're like, oh, Lord, just take me now, you know? (laughs) Like, I've had jobs like that, where going into work is just like, why? Why am I doing this? Maybe I should just camp for the rest of my life. (laughs) Or maybe the, the job's all right, but the people you're working for or with, it's like, it's like, it's just this really difficult environment to be in. And you're like, why am I working for these people? And if we're going to back away just from ourselves, like we're a room full of people who live in a pretty privileged situation where we can hate our jobs, right? <laughs> for, for a lot of people in world history, people like slaves and serfs, you didn't have an option. Work was actually part of your oppression. You didn't have a choice if you wanted to go farm that day or or mine that coal. You were going because you were owned. Right. So even though there's some things we love about work, there's a lot of problems that come with it too. And and the only thing for those of us who who like are struggling with your job, the only thing worse than having a job you hate is losing that job, right? Or be in fear of losing it. And, and so there's kind of this inherent insecurity that comes with work as well. Not only the financial aspect of it, but for some of you guys, without your job, you don't know who you are. Like it really defines you. 
Like if I get let go from my job or my career is replaced by AI or something like that, don't want to make anyone nervous, but you know. Like what then? What am I good for? Some of us turn work into a downright idol. Right? I've heard someone say in, in, the, in the U.S., we, we play at worship, we work at play, and we worship work. Right? It, it, it comes to be the defining thing. Like, and think about it. Like you're getting to know somebody. It's like the third question you ask. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Right? Like not like, who are your relatives? Do you have a dog? Um, that sort of thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's very high on the list. And, and here's the other thing that can really confuse us is if I'm a Christian, my number one commitment in life is Jesus. That's what my life is supposed to be about. So if I'm spending most of my, most of my waking hours, like not praying or doing evangelism or whatever, like I'm, I'm making widgets or what have you, like, like, am I being unfaithful? Because, like, that's where most of my time goes. How does God speak to this situation? How does understanding who God is and who we are uh, made in his image actually help us to, to resolve some of these issues, to, to, to redeem some of the problems that are inherent with work, but also to answer that big question of, like, what does my work have to do with my faith? Like, are they two separate things? Like, am I missing out and, and, and like, not practicing my faith when I'm at work, unless you're me or, or someone else who works in ministry, right? Where I literally read the Bible at work. Um, <laughs> okay, this is going to seem so unrelated to what we're talking about, but I promise you it is. We are going to look in detail at a tent today. Why? Because in the, in the book of Exodus, you got 40 chapters. You know how many of those chapters are dedicated to the building of a tent? Twelve. Like, think about Exodus. Think about everything that happened in Exodus. It's so exciting. And God's delivering them from slavery and coming down in the, in the volcano theophany and all that stuff. And then it's like, but wait, we need 12 chapters for the tent. Okay, what can be so special about this tent? Take a look with me. Uh, we're going to play a little Bible detective and try and see why, so, why this tent is so important that it gets 12. That's a lot. That's like a percentage that I can't calculate on the fly. 40 chapters, 12, carry the... <sighs> that didn't work out. Um, look with me, Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9 says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent, okay? And, and, and look, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. There you go. That's it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let, all right, so I brought pictures. First, here's the big complex, right? Like, this is the area, like, what's happening now is God is preparing a place for his presence to dwell with his people. And key to this, key to this is the tent. That's the tabernacle right there, okay? Now, the pattern, the pattern is the key. It said pattern. 
All right, we're going to ask, what is the pattern? So I want you guys to notice, here's a, here's a close-up of the tent. There we go. See that pretty good? Everybody at the back seat pretty good? Okay, so there's a curtain. It's a big curtain. This curtain actually runs the whole way. It's just showing you a cutaway there, right? You have everything in front of the curtain, everything behind the curtain. That's the pattern. In front of the curtain, behind the curtain. So one more time. <laughs> the pattern is there's everything, that's right, in front of the curtain, and then, of course, not forgetting what's behind it. What's, it, what's behind the curtain? We'll begin with that. All right? Exodus 25, beginning at verse 10. The first thing that you need to know that's behind the curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 10, it says, They shall make an ark of a kale wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. So don't forget the gold mold. The gold made of mold. The mold, gold. Anyway. So the ark, covered in gold. Okay? Um... Can we get a picture of the ark? Here we go. So this ark, the thing that melts Nazi faces. You all know what it is. All right? So you got angels on it. Angels on it. And, oh yeah, let's look at 25, 21 through 22. This is more. He says, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. That's the... The, the book of the law, the Ten Commandments, are inside it. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay. So what is above it? The presence of God. What is inside it? The Ten Commandments. What is on top of it? Angels. Okay. Seeing any pattern yet? Still confused. Okay, that's fine. So this ark, this is one more thing. The ark functions as a footstool. Do you know where you would find a footstool? And if you said under feet, you would be correct. But under whose feet? In the ancient world, it would be under the feet of a king. That's right. When the king sits enthroned, the footstool is symbolic of what that king rules over. Okay, so go back to the, the tent with the tabernacle. There we go. So behind it, you have the ark, the presence of God, and angels. His footstool, angels, presence of God. There, that's what's behind it. Now let's look at what's in front of it. First of all, you have bread. Chapter 25, verse 30 says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Here we go. That's what it looked like. It's not a whole lot there except that there's 12 of them. Hmm. 12 loaves of bread, like 12 tribes of Israel, right? Okay, so in front of it, you've got 12 tribes of Israel. You also have a lamp. Chapter 25, uh, Verses 31 through 33, it says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, 
The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. Okay, so you also have a lampstand like this. A lampstand that is in the shape of a lampstand, but resembles a tree. In the Bible, like, like before the book of Exodus, were there any important trees? Right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there's also the tree of life. And wait a second. You know what else makes us think of the book of Genesis? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The days of creation. Got it? So this symbolizes creation. So you have the, the people of God, you have creation, and then there's also an altar of incense, which I don't have a picture of, but the incense symbolizes the, the praises of God's people. So back to the, back to the, the tabernacle. Everything in front, everything behind. Behind, you have God's footstool for his throne room, the presence of God, angels. In front of it, you have creation, the praises of his people. There's the, the altar of incense and the bread of the presence, the 12 tribes. Do you see the pattern? Back here is heaven. Up here is earth. Okay, that's the pattern. It is the meeting place. Right there, that's the meeting place of heaven and earth. In the same way that that right there is the meeting place of indoors and outdoors. Make sense? Right? It's, it's the threshold. Now, why is this so important? What does this have to do with redemption? Right? God's plan of redemption is the reunion of heaven and earth. It's the restoration of God's presence among humanity. Right? Like, like, this is redemption. God putting things back together, reconciling heaven and earth. And so the building of this tabernacle is kind of the big step one, right? There's an official place where heaven and earth commune. Now you see why this is so key. And we will relate it to work because this is really key. How is God going to accomplish this main plank of his plan of redemption, right? The heart of his plan of redemption, of, of he being their God and they being his people and them coming together, these two things that are, that are separated by sin. How is he going to put it back together? Look at verse, uh, chapter 31, 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. All right, he's anointed with ability and intelligence. What, what is this guy going to be? Right, he, this is, sounds like a prophet, doesn't he? Or, or, or a, a special, you know, apostle type person. You know, worship leader maybe? Let's take a look. With knowledge 
and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may be able uh, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So who's getting filled with the Spirit to accomplish God's plan? Not evangelists, not preachers, not teachers, not worship leaders. Those folks are important. It's sons of toil. It's guys who work with their hands, who do something that if you were watching it, it's like, that doesn't look too spiritual. Hammering, <laughs> carrying rocks, you know, all that. But God's Spirit is enabling them and empowering them for this special work. What we see here is that God uses his people's work to build his kingdom, right? The the kingdom by definition is the coming of God's presence to earth. My question is, do you think it stopped with the tabernacle? Like that was the last installment of God reuniting heaven and earth. No, of course not. The, The tabernacle gives way to the temple, right? And then the temple is replaced by something far better. You talk about the presence of God with humanity. Can you beat Jesus for that? No, right? But Jesus, of course, ascended. But did it stop with Jesus? Where is the intersection of God and man now? It's what Jesus founded. It's the church, right? It's the people of God, both gathered for worship and in the world. Not just that we're one expression, of course, But all over the world, like the intersection of heaven and earth is in God's people. And God uses his people's work to build his kingdom. This is is something we need to understand about work. Work is not a result of the fall. A lot of us think that if, if, if our first parents had not sinned, that we'd kind of just be hippies and just running around and, and doing whatever. I mean, this Probably some hippieism there. But anyway, no, actually, we see at creation that God gave Adam and the woman a job to tend the garden, to bring order from chaos, to name the animal, to name all the creatures, right? Work was always meant to be part of creation. It's actually not part of the curse. It's part of how we image God. When we're made in the image of God, part of that is just it's doing what God does. What did God do in the beginning? He brought order out of chaos. What was Adam's job? To tend the garden, to bring order out of chaos. And so when, when, when think about what you guys do for jobs. Those of you who are on the zeros and ones, what was that before you ordered it? It was nothing. It was chaos, right? And you turned it into a way for people to receive medical care or a date or something, right? Like, like that's happening here, right? You're, you're, you bring order from chaos to facilitate part of human flourishing. Now, some of us don't quite get this and think of like, well, if I'm not doing like ministry work, then my work isn't ministry, my work, or, or, or like maybe I'm witnessing at my office, right? Like, like that's, that's all good. And, and I'm not saying that like missionaries, pastors, all these people are, are not doing the work of God. Of course we are. But 
the person who is writing a piece of music or performing a piece of music, the person who's teaching a child to read or, or writing a book or doing landscaping or swimming, swinging a hammer on a construction site to build a home or what have you, the list goes on and on, is also doing the work of God. Right? That, that is part of the work of God's people. Those who are relieving distress, uh, working with marginalized populations, counselors, the medical folk, right? Um, people who are contributing to human flourishing through law or making food or making someone a great cup of coffee or showing people how to live healthier lives and that sort of thing. There's those who are pushing back the fall, right? Those who are in, in law enforcement or, or, or um, you know, who are trying to alleviate poverty. Like, I can't cover every single career, but you... Are you getting this? Right? It, it's, not just, it's not just the clergy who are doing the work of God in redemption. It is everybody. Right? Now, does this have limitations? Like, hey, like Tony Soprano's listening to the sermon. It's like, oh, what I do? Right? Like, I whack people to the glory of God. No, that's not, like, you can't violate God's will and do the work of God. That's not how it works. But the fact remains that God uses his people's work to build his kingdom. Now, how does this address those issues of feeling like your work is futile, of experiencing often the burden of work? And then, then of course, the, 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 the insecurity that comes with work, right? Like, like, what was it all about? First of all, if God is using his people's work to build his kingdom... It means that, that God gives work purpose, okay? Have you guys ever seen a sand mandala? You guys know what I'm talking about? Those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a Buddhist thing, right? And Buddhist monks do this as part of their discipline. Here, here's one. All right, this, this is beautiful, right? You know what that's made of? Grains of sand. So these monks will sit around, you know, and, and like, look at the skill and the training and the practice that had to go in this for them to, to, to do this, right? Sand is tricky to work with, I, I understand. <laughs> I would imagine. I've never tried. It's too hard. I'm not even going for it. But they spend weeks, months building this. You know what they do as soon as it's done? They wipe it off the table. It's part of, it's a reflection of the way they see the world that everything we do vanishes. It's all futile. And that might be how a lot of you guys feel about your work. Because no matter how successful you are, even if you get a, a building named after you, guess what? That's going to be a ruin someday, right? But if God is building an eternal kingdom, what that means if he's using our work as, as part of building that kingdom, it means it matters forever. It means it isn't temporary. I think we're going to be very, very surprised at, at the things that we see in the kingdom. It's like, oh, that made it in? That was actually part of the kingdom? I hated that job, <laughs> right? That job wasn't fun at all. I felt like I was just spinning my wheels. Like, it, it, in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, when we see this, this final reunion of heaven and earth, when the city of God is established, it says that the nations bring their treasures to God, right? It, it's this idea that, that human beings have something to offer that God's going to use in his kingdom. And, and we get to be part of that. 
So not only does God give work purpose if he's using our work to build his kingdom, it also means it's dignified. God dignifies work. Let me ask you this. The, the people we just read about, filled with the spirit of God, they're going to be hammering and making all the tabernacle things, right? That's some serious skill. Those of you who work with your hands, searching, searching, search. Oh, there's one, <laughs> right? Like it takes a lot of practice. It takes a while to learn how to make things with stones and lapis lazuli. Where'd they learn it? Well, but let, let's just review. Exodus, what was their recent history? Well, they've been going through the desert. Is that what they learned it? A couple months in the desert? No. They were slaves, weren't they? So these guys would have been high-skilled slaves, so more, maybe, maybe got a little bit better treatment, but slaves nonetheless. Everything that they built, all of this skill that they put in to, to uh, their work was for what? The pharaoh. It was for their enslavers, not, not, not for their people, right? And they didn't have a choice if they would show up for work or, or do, build what they wanted to build, did they? Yet now, what does God do with the very skills that were emblematic of their enslavement? He says, you don't work for them. It was never for them. It was always for me. Your father, not your enslaver. You may hate your job. It may, be, it may be damaging to your dignity. You may not like the company you're working for or your boss. Guess what? You don't work for them. You're actually working for God because God is using your work to build his kingdom. Okay? And that means that from people doing menial labor out of sheer desperation... Their work is not for the people exploiting them. It's for God. And it means that the people with the highest end jobs, guess what? <laughs> like, like it, it, it's so tempting to just drink in that prestige that comes with, with your role. But in reality, you're making an offering to God. God dignifies work. And also, God uses our work, right? Like, 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 like the, the very resources that are produced for, from our work are used for, for building his kingdom, of course, but also like he's going to incorporate our work into his kingdom. Think of what an honor that is. Uh, one of the strangest days of my life, I, for those of you who don't know, I used to be in a band and we made quite a few records and stuff like that. And one time, uh, this was around 99, I was tracking, we were making an album at a pretty uh, well-known studio, like a a professional level studio in LA. And it was a very strange day. Uh, the way it worked is there was like a common area and then studios off, uh, you know, uh, surrounding this common area. And I was sitting in the common area having a bagel one morning. And the first strange thing that happened is that the, the creators of South Park walked in, Matt Stone, Trey Parker. They were, they looked harassed. Uh, tired, and they were rolling big cases and yelling at, at everybody. And the, the director of music comes in, sits down, and I start talking to him. It's like, hey, what are you guys doing? He's like, oh, we're, we're making like a South Park record. It was called Chef Aid, for those of you who remember Chef and Chef Aid. <laughs> you can look this up. It's all Googleable. And, and, and then the next thing that happens is that somebody I, who like, was a kind of a hero, Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction, anybody? Jane's Addiction, I know this is an old reference, guys, but 
You can Google that too. They were a big deal. Perry Farrell walks in. I was like, who, Perry Farrell's here. He's real weird. <laughs> as weird as you think he'd be. And then the last one was when I got starstruck because a Rolls Royce pulled up right outside the door and out walks this guy, this creature in very, very tight, clearly didn't, didn't, clearly bought them a long time ago, acid wash jeans that were ripped up, not because that's how they came, but because just he hasn't bought new pants, but he did buy a new Rolls Royce apparently. <laughs> and flowing beard and hair, it was Rick Rubin. A lot of you guys don't know who that is. <laughs> Maybe the most legendary producer in the history of rock and hip hop. Founded Def Jam Records. Produced uh, It's Yours by Tila Rock. That was an early hip hop landmark. Produced Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Johnny Cash, um, Run DMC, Discovered the Beastie Boys, all that, right? He's a legend, right? Half of my favorite records are made by him. And so I was just like, really pokered as he walked in. I was like, don't do anything stupid right now. That'll embarrass yourself. And, and he sits down and he starts yelling at the music director, the guy I had been talking to. And so I was just like trying to make myself unnoticeable. And the reason was, is because uh, the, the music director forgot to book a bass amp for the session, right? And mind you, our bass player was in the other studio using his bass amp to track, and, and, and the music director pointed at me and said, said, he's in a band, they have a bass amp, and I, I said, yes, Mr. Rubin, uh, you're welcome to use our bass amp uh, on, on your session. We were using it, we totally needed it, and I offered it, right? <laughs> and Rick Rubin looked at the music director, he looked at me, back at the music director, and he went, <sighs> and left. <laughs> Could you imagine if he said yes? <laughs> if something that I had to offer was used on a recording made by Rick Rubin, I'd be so honored. I'd go buy a bass amp. <laughs> like that, and be like, here you go. Right? Like, th think about that. Think about how much greater this is that your work, your job, that you sometimes hate, that you often forget is for God. God is going to use in building his kingdom. That kind of changes our view on our day of work, doesn't it? So if God redeems our work, if God is using our work in redemption, what does that mean for us? What do we do? It means we offer our work to God. It means we offer our work to God. When you go into work tomorrow, unless you have the day off, offer your work to God consciously. Keep in mind, that you are not working for your boss or for yourself or just to have enough money to go do fun things, but instead that you are offering this day of work to God. If it's a job you hate for people that you don't love, if it seems kind of pointless, right? If you feel like it's a distraction from Jesus, in reality, as you are sitting there using the skills God gave you, functioning as a creature made in God's image, God is using your work in ways that we, we do not understand and we're not going to understand until we see it done, God is using our work to accomplish his plan of redemption. Once there were, um, I don't know if this story is true, but it, it's, it doesn't matter. But once there were three stonemasons working on these huge, you know, like, like giant stone blocks, the way they used to back in the day. And uh, I, I think it was I, uh, um, 
who's the Gothic cathedral guy? I forget his name. Anyway, doesn't matter. So he goes up. They don't know it's him. And, uh, and he asks the first guy, what are you doing here with this, this block of stone? And he's like, um, I'm banging away with the chisel, smoothing out the rough spots. Okay. He goes to the next guy and he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm here whacking away at this stone like, the day I did, like I did the day before and I'm going to do every day till I die. And he goes to the last guy. He says, what are you doing with this stone? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. This stone that I'm working on is going to go in that front wall. I won't live to see it done, but I know it'll be done. Right? And I know this is going to be my contribution. God redeems work. You may feel like some days it's just meaninglessly banging away at something. But, but God speaks to our difficulty with work, to these challenges we have with work by redeeming it and using it in his kingdom. Offer your work to God. Let's pray.